If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor, and it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection, and I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. Today is a treat. Today I am talking with William Paul Young, who is best known for his work, The Shack. I know a lot of you have been so moved and inspired and challenged and just had a life-changing moment with that book and with that movie, as have I. And this is truly one of the most impactful conversations I think I've had on this podcast to date. One of the things I love about our guest today is his tenderness, his humility, and his openness to thinking outside the box and to letting the Spirit of God, that love divine being, move through him and in him in ways that for many is uncomfortable. I love his authenticity, and you can hear that in our conversation today. I didn't talk about this in the episode, but I will mention it to you guys. I first encountered him in person when he came to speak at a local church, and he actually served communion to those of us attending church that day. And I just remember how humbling it was to have someone of of his notoriety giving us communion and after the service was over I thanked him for for what he spoke on and he looked me in the eye and he just embraced me and he hugged me for what felt like five long minutes although it was probably only 30 seconds and I just wept that day was on the back end of my resignation of being a pastor and it was also on the back end of a very painful ending to my marriage and as many of you know i was in a season of grief for what felt like an eternity and his timely message that day spoke volumes to me of my worth of my value and of my place inside the family of god and and i will never forget the way he spoke to me that day and then the way he held me after that service was just, it's just a moment I'd never forget. I didn't get a chance to thank him for that on the episode and so I wanted to give that space here because it was life-changing for me and it meant so much to me. And I, and I don't think that it's because I was anybody special. I think it's just because that's the kind of guy he is. So all of that being said, you are in for quite the conversation. This is just an awesome conversation. Now, for those of you who are not inside our Facebook group, I want to extend an invitation to you to be inside the group because I got to pull the group for questions to ask him and I got to ask them, what did they want to hear him talk about? What are some of the things that that was on their mind? If they could sit down with him, what would they want to ask him? And so if you'd like to be inside that group and get to have input into the things we talk about on this show, I'd love to have you there. 
you can join our Facebook group by going to my website, just jesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. And we would love to have you in it. So no more talking for me. Let's get into this conversation. Here we go. have a special guest with us today. We have William Paul Young. He has written four books, one of which was made into a movie, which we all probably know that one, which is The Shack. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's been on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. He has spoken to many audiences all around the world. Paul Young, oh my gosh, what an intro. Oh, I'm, I'm wondering who you're talking about, but... Uh... <laughs> No, you know what's funny is I get this thing with, do you are you a, like a British rock star? Because there was a Paul Young, that was a British rock star, and uh, right, yeah, yes, any, there was. Anytime you go away, you know that that old song. Yes. yes. So no, thank you very much. Honored to be with you, Anna. Oh, uh, we are so honored to have you here, and what a journey you have been on, and your work just speaks to that journey so profoundly. And I know I personally have been a beneficiary of your work as well as many people listening to this podcast. You've touched the lives of so many people and you've recently released the book and it's your first nonfiction, Lies We Believe About God. And I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit what shaped your original view of God. Oh, um, missionary kid, preacher's kid. So um, my original view of God was very much um, modern evangelical um, Western tradition, uh, probably more reformed than anything else. Um, had an angry father and an angry God, basically. Mm. Um, so my relationship with my dad had a huge impact on my view of God. Um, the theology that I grew up with, of course, did. And then um, the damage, I think the damage in my own life that was so much shame-based matched the theology that was also very shame-driven. And, um, and that's what took the longest time to work my way through. Um, mm. yeah. So those are some of the framings. But throughout, throughout my life, um, I've been a pursuer of questions. You know, everything I write have, has to do with real questions. And um, whether it's the shack where the question is, you know, how do you deal with tragedy in the midst of a, of a belief that there is a God who's good all the time? And, um, and so there's huge questions around that. Uh, Crossroads was, you know, how does grace or transformation get inside the world of someone who doesn't want it? You know, who's cut themselves off from relationship. And because um, mm. I think relationship is the crucible for transformation. Um, and then uh, Eve was about... You know, if men are so obviously more messed up than women, how come they're in charge? <laughs> you know, and I, and I grew up in a in a very hierarchical, male-dominated. You know, the best we could come up with was complementarianism, which was the belief that, oh yeah, we're equal, but um, we each have our role. You know, which I think is just a crock. And uh, um, and then um, lies was just a whole bunch of theological questions. 
what are the lies that have dominated my life? And so if you read lies, you'll, you'll see a lot of the theology that I've had to wrestle my way through over the course of my life. And um, they involve everything from hierarchy to the goodness of God to, you know, is God a controller? Um, uh, does God have a low view of humanity? Is God disappointed in, with me? Does he even like me? All, you know, some really basic intertwined fundamental lies. You know, is God a Christian? Does he believe in my politics? <laughs> you know? so, right. Yeah. And, you know, you and I share much of the same background as far as our evangelical roots being so deeply intertwined in our parents being in ministry positions and all of those things. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, I think many of us have just held so far in and maybe even come to our own um, conclusions about the goodness of God and a whole vastly benevolent picture we were never shown. But it seems until recently, no one has really been talking about it. And so you have been so much on the front lines of exposing this, what many would call heretic-like or progressive or whatever you want to call it, viewpoint of a God that's actually really good. You know, it's, what's really crazy is that it's the viewpoint of the early church. It's not yes. like, it's not like yes. we're coming up with something that hasn't been thought of before. This is... This was where the early church cut their teeth, was on the goodness and the inclusivity of God. Um, yes. It's only been since Western rationalism post-Reformation you know, um, that we got stuck in our heads and we ended up with a God who was much more like an attorney than a father and, mm. uh, and than a good father. And um, so I think that's part of it. I, I want to say a couple things. One is, you know, modern evangelicals are my people. They're... Right. They're the ones who don't like my stuff and have the most problems with it. But I get that. I understand the power of, of a paradigm that's fear-based. And most religion is fear and shame-based. It starts with separation. It then becomes transactional. You have to perform certain things in order to get across the divide. And, um, and that, I mean, that's my people. And uh, the last thing that I want to do is to not include my own people. And the second thing I want to say is that I gained a lot from my heritage. You know, it, was, yeah. it wasn't all a disaster. There were some really dysfunctional things about it. And some of the theology was, was not only dysfunctional, I think was diabolical. And, um, but, but I got a, a, a healthy uh, view of, of scripture, of the person of Jesus, of a theological framework, of an ability to think logically. Um, it became somewhat dysfunctional because then, you know, you can think logically without it tampering with your paradigms. You know, you just become someone who is about the argument, not about change. And right. uh, so, yeah, so we do share a lot. Absolutely. We do. And, and I served as a pastor for a period of time in my ministry lengthlong career. And, you know, so many of these questions that you raise in your work are so human. They are so much of the human experience and the human questions and the human longing for authenticity and for connection to a good, kind, safe, loving God. And one of the things that you talk about in your recent book, is this um, this lie of, well, God loves us, but he doesn't like us. And, you know, when you've been given this idea that says, well, God loves you, but 
He will punish you with eternal torment unless you say this prayer, make these changes, profess these statements of belief, etc. It can feel very confusing. Oh, and so I was huge. curious if you could if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, first let me say thank you. It's for you to say about the humanity of what I write and the questions that I write is a huge compliment because then I think oh. I think that is why the books have had such an impact is because they are human. Yeah. They're not a piece of propaganda that's trying to get people to make a transactional uh, decision that gets them across the great divide between them and God. And, and uh, you know, because I think that's part of the lies that we were told. Religion needs that separation in order for self-existence. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm using religion in a pejorative sense. I mean, there's elements of religion that are really positive that have had a huge impact on, on the human race. And, uh, but any, any human institution, and all religions are human institutions, um, they're going to be a mix of good and evil. Uh, it's, just, right. it's just what we bring to the table. And uh, the problem was that you and I grew up in a world where it wasn't presented that way. It was presented as the institution itself is the good. And so you dare not uh, question it or, or anything like that. Um, so as far as some of the fundamental lies that, you know, yes, he loves me, but he's going to judge me at the end of the day. Well, that puts you into a very, a very difficult relational dynamic, you know, like, uh, 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 we also had the belief that God abandoned Jesus on the cross, you know? And so if, mm-hmm. if, if God can abandon, uh, Jesus on the cross, then, then what stops him from doing it again? Um, I mean, it's the, the pattern of behavior. Yeah. He can promise me all he wants, but you know, this God does abandonment. And of course, you know, that I think that that's just all craziness. And, um, <laughs> Um, and, and so there's a lot of these piled up, uh, beliefs that, that, that judgment is against us or a judgment is a declaration of our humanity, you know, that, that God reveals that he's really actually pissed off. Yep. Right. And, and, and yes, he may love you because he sort of has to, because that's how he's been couched, but he, he has a very low view of humanity and, and we were told that we were told that that God was disappointed in us, that God had a low view of humanity, that we were worthless and depraved. God loved us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. I mean, haven't you heard that? Oh yes, yeah, yes. And it's and it's like, well, no, you're you're a piece of crap. But you know, God is so great and so good that He loves pieces of crap. But it doesn't change the fact that you're a piece of crap. In fact. You're always going to be a piece of crap. So Jesus is going to wrap you up in his righteousness. And so that God, the father somehow gives you a pass because when he looks at you, he doesn't see the piece of crap you are. He sees Jesus. And it's like, what kind of nonsense is this? And, and how would that ever fit into a relational reality? And uh, so there's so many of the things that we grew up with and held dear that are being challenged and they get, here's crazy. They get challenged by things like lyrics of a song or by encounters with children or by having a child or having a grandchild. You know, I I have, I have a friend that said um, that, you know, he said, here's the sad thing that I was able to disassociate my theology from my own children. That is, somehow in the warpness of the theology, I was still able to send my children to, 
to eternal conscious torment. But he said, I couldn't do it with my grandchildren. So, oh, that's interesting. So interesting. That, that means that by the time that he had grandchildren, he had softened up as a human being to the point where he could no longer consign, you know, by some elected will of God, a child to the uh, fires of eternal conscious torment. And, uh, and, 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 and you need to understand, I believe in judgment, but I think it's always for us. I think it's never against us. And I think it's the same fury that wants me to destroy any lie that hurts anybody that I love. If, if, I, if I have a daughter who begins to believe that she is unworthy and that she is damaged goods or whatever the lie is, you know, I, I want the, the authority to be a flaming fire of fury and, and destroy that which hurts the one I love. But it's not because they've disappointed me or because they haven't lived up to my expectations. It's because I love them. And, and I think that kind of fury originates with God, that this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in me. And, mm. and that is a love that is for me. So, um, I, in fact, I think it was uh, McDonald that says, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to this God with your arms wide open and you will say, come, please judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. Well, and if you look at judgment, like you just said, from a lens of a loving action rather than a punishing action, of course you would run to that. Yes. Because love is the most amazing, life-changing, transforming force on earth. Yeah. I was, uh, I was on a ride with... Richard Rohr, I did a conference with him and Cynthia Bougeau on the Trinity last, last year. And, and we, we were driving along in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, and Richard says, you know, this might be a really strange thing to hear a, uh, a, a priest, a monk who, is, who has dedicated his life to celibacy. Um, you know, Kansas City farm boy who didn't know what, what he would end up in the middle of. And uh, he said, but... After all these years, after all the people that I've talked to and counseled with, he says, I'm, I've come to the understanding that the single greatest gift that God has ever given humanity is marriage mm. because you can't hide. I mean, you can sure try, but, you know, there's a thing about staying isolated that keeps us inside of our paradigms. It's when we're pushed into the, into the fires of actual relationship, you know, Frankly, this is why porn is so attractive because it's not, it's not about an actual relationship. It's just the imagination of one. And, uh, and it's without the risks of a real one because the risks of a real relationship expose us. And, um, and therefore he's saying, you know, marriage is so exposing because your crap is going to come to the surface. You know, all the things that are broken in you, the ways that you think about yourself, how you treat other people, you're now going to be in close proximity inside of a relationship and it, it will become a fire within itself. And, mm. um, and, and I, I love that. I, I mean, I, I've said, you know, marriage would be a lot easier without another person involved. And, uh, <laughs> boy, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But, but we wouldn't change apart from relationship. That's, right. that's why I said it's the crucible of transformation. You know, it's it, relationships, as difficult and as uncontrollable and mysterious as they are, 
we're made in the image of a God who's never been alone, a God who is fundamentally relational by nature. And so is it any wonder that relationship is so at the core of both the way we're broken and the way we're healed? Oh, I love that. And I so want to dig into that. But before I do, I want to go back to something that you said when you were talking about judgment, because I think this is where a lot of people get stuck and can't move into that relational piece that you're talking about. Tell us, because I've heard you talk about this before, tell us about how even that word judgment is used inside of scripture. Ah, So there's a whole bunch of different Greek words for it, but the one we're most common uh, that, that we know of mostly is when it, call, it talks about the day of judgment or there's appointed for a person a, a time to die and after that, the judgment. Um, that, that word in the Greek is krisis, uh, where we get the English word crisis from. So it's, it's relating judgment to a crisis that you're going to be face to face with love and you're going to know that he knows that you know that he knows. And, uh, and it's going to uh, enact a crisis. I don't think that death is our salvation. That is, that, that death is the transformative event. I think that, that Jesus is the transformative event. And uh, uh, also, the way judgment is used without exception is from a family of restoration words. If, if you don't have judgment with the intention to restore and redeem, all you have is vengeance or something punitive and retributive. There is, mm. There's one word in the Greek that is punitive and retributive, but it's never used of God. It's only used of how human beings who are broken relate to each other. And, um, and so, you know, the, the concept of judgment, and, and this, of course, affects the whole conversation about hell and, and, and all of that. But to, to me... You know, if you want to hold on to your darkness, and potentially you could do that forever and ever, um, that tension seems to be very much held in Scripture. But if you want to hold on to it, you're still not going to get away from the love of God. You know, death can't separate you. Life can't separate you. Nothing in the future can separate you. And no created thing can separate you. So you're not going to get away from the love of God. And if you want to hold on to your darkness and be in the presence, the eternal presence of the love of God, doing that will be hell to you. And if you want to let it go, that will be heaven to you. So for me, the fire of the, the God is a consuming fire. That fire is the love of God intending to destroy that which is within us that is not of love's kind that hurts us. Oh, that's so good. And I and I can even hear, this is probably my upbringing coming up, and what I imagine maybe some listeners may be thinking is, well, well yeah, that, that's called repentance. That, that's, where, that's where we have to tell people that if they don't change, they're, they're going to, to not experience that. And, and so then you get that evangelical push that, that instinctively drives a lot of people towards the hell versus heaven conversation. Um, when you look at Scripture— and again, I've heard you mention this in other um, interviews you've done and other talks you've done. It's so interesting how Jesus discusses hell yeah. and how even you know hell is used throughout Scripture. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure, sure. And and let me recommend Brad Jerzak's book. It's called "Her, yes. Her Gates Will Never Be Shut," and it's uh, about the best book out there right now. And it's very so objective. Good. Looks throughout history. But one of Brad's arguments um, about this whole conversation 
is he's done some work, and so have a lot of other scholars, on how Jesus relates to the term Gehenna. Now, it used to be in our English translations that anything that had to do with Sheol or Hades or Gehenna, they were just called hell, even though Sheol and Hades are both referring to the place of the dead rather than to any kind of fiery um, uh, lake of fire or anything else. Uh, But lately, the translations have started to become a a little bit more clear about that, so that they're using the term hell in reference to Gehenna. Now, Jeremiah was the first prophet who really started, he's the one that talked about the lake of fire. He's the one that talked about um, fire as the restorative purging of God's uh, love and, um, and the fiery fury of justice, which is just love. And, um, and, there, was, there were two theories or two main streams of thought. Uh, there was the Jeremiah tradition, and Jeremiah was absolutely opposed to, you know, um, there was a, um, a big uh, worship center in Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem, in which the prophets, uh, I think it was Marduk, um, they, would, uh, they would light, light these altars and, and become so hot that they would sacrifice babies. Uh, and it infuriated Jeremiah. And so he took mm. uh, a whole bunch of soldiers and they went in and burned the Valley of Hinnom. That became the Lake of Fire. But the, the whole point that Jeremiah makes is restoration. There is never a usage where Jeremiah isn't about restoration, that the point of burning it is to restore. Now, by the time Jesus... Uh, comes onto the scene, there is this stream of thought regarding uh, the fiery fury of God's judgment from Jeremiah. But there was the Pharisaical one, which is much more like our eternal conscious torment. Even, but even the Pharisees didn't believe it was eternal. They just believed that, you know, you were, you were tortured until you'd paid for uh, equivalent to the sins that you'd committed. And then, and then you were extinguished. And, um, so uh, here's the deal. The question is, so in which tradition is Jesus? And Brad makes this point very clearly that there is not one time that Jesus mentions Gehenna, not once, where he doesn't quote Jeremiah. He wants, right. he wants to be seen clearly that he is in the tradition of Jeremiah, which means he's in the tradition of restoration. And, and, and let me say this too. If hell was such a huge issue... Um, in the mind, the way that we think of it as eternal conscious torment, that once you die, you know, it's kind of like game over. Um, if that was true, you'd think it would be even mentioned in any of the early sermons of the early church, the book of Acts, and you won't find mm-hmm. it, you won't find it nope. mentioned, mentioned one time. And, um, and so, you know, uh, there's an entirely different paradigm. And again, Brad's book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, does, does a support job of looking at this whole conversation and saying, you know what, there were a lot of different viewpoints over the centuries that were not considered to be heretical um, that are are different than the eternal conscious torment model. The eternal conscious torment model has really significant problems um, for a lot of different things, like how do you deal with the unborn baby? How do you deal with the mentally ill? You know, for a lot of us in the evangel- modern evangelical uh, world, we didn't grow up with a um, 
theology that was big enough for mental illness or big enough for, you know, we had to come up with imagined solutions like the age of accountability and stuff like that. That has no grounding within scripture at all, but it, it, it allied or allayed our sense of God just, he just can't be so mean as to send a newborn baby or an unborn baby to eternal conscious torment. So we had to find a way to, to try to get around that. But that also creates a whole, whole, whole new set of problems. Like do, do unborn babies get a free pass? You know, if they do, why did God let me be born? Do mentally ill get a free pass? You know, do those in foreign countries who've never heard the gospel get judged by a different set of parameters than we do? And I'm speaking inside the evangelical model. Right. And, right. Um, and if they do, why, sh why are we spreading the gospel? You know, because it seems that as soon as we do, they're going to be judged by a stricter criteria than if we don't tell them at all. I mean, there's, there's all these inconsistencies and difficulties. And the early church, they'd have gone like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> this, is, this is not a God who's capricious like this. This is a God who included you in Christ. And when Jesus died, you all died. And when he rose, you all rose. Corinthians. Mm. You know? and, yes. and he reconciled the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. And um, so what does this mean? That means you were included in the finished work of Jesus, and it is a finished work. And, and now it's a question of relationship. You know, like, do you, do you want to deal with your crap or not? Do you want to be in a face-to-face -face relationship or do you want your own stuff? And, um, and so it's a relational conversation. That's, that's us working out the salvation that was accomplished in Jesus. You know? One of the things that was so freeing for me when I was wrestling with this, because I think it's easy to have the they are in hell camp, I am in heaven camp mentality if you are not interacting with people of different beliefs, if you're not interacting with people outside of your group. But as soon as you step outside those lines, like you said, you run into a lot of problems. You run into a lot of questions. And when I went through that in my journey, I just dug into the gospel portion of scripture. That, that's where I hovered. I just stayed there with the Jesus story. And, and I started seeing this pattern of Jesus interacting with mankind saying, I don't do anything apart from my father. So what Jesus is doing is what God would do. And he wasn't going around burning up people who didn't believe in him. No. Like he didn't. Yeah. In fact, he allowed them to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. And the, the only people he had harsh terms for, and it wasn't harsh in the sense of abusive. It was harsh in the no. tense of confrontive. Yes. We're religious people. You know, re yes. religious people have always been the furthest away from freedom. And the furthest away from truth is partly because they're, you know, as my friend Baxter says, they're filled with self-referential incoherence, you know, right. and, uh, and so they've developed a, a law-based ethic rather than the life of Jesus that expresses from the inside out. And, um, and, you know, when Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 he's not saying, damn you, he's saying, stop, you know, it's, yeah. it's in the, in the Hebrew context, it's, it's the cry of the prophet that says, wake up, you know, what you're doing is destructive, not only to you, but to the relationships that you're involved in. So stop. And, um, you know, but yeah, you know, I'm with you. We grew up where 
you know, people outside of those who had made their transactional decision to be in, um, they, they weren't really good. They could do what appeared to be good things, but it's not because they were good, you know, right. it, it was because they, they were doing the best they, I mean, we had this really weird, un, unbelievably dysfunctional capacity to create the them, those who weren't included. And, mm-hmm. and then we could be superior. We could, we could have the gospel news which wasn't great news, by the way, for the most part. And uh, but but we could go and and tell people, and if they ignored it, then they they stayed on the outside. But if they came in, now they could be part of our system. And um, sick. I mean, religions most of the time is pretty sick anyway. You know, so. So. I'm curious if you could share some of your thoughts on, because I know this is something that comes up a lot in these conversations. Um, what do you say about the pruning verses in scripture? We all know those about those who do not bear good fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Yeah. And so that's a very scary, real thing for many, many of us. So talk a little bit about that. Um, the, some of the best writing that's been done, and you can, you can look it up on, you can Google that passage and there are some people who have done some really great work with uh, Middle Eastern viticulture and what it's actually talking about and how the context of it has been mistranslated in those passages. Um, there, for example, the, the one that says that he, he cuts him off, the actual translation is that he lifts it up. He lifts it up from the ground. And, and the viticulture folks talk about two different seasons both are which intended to restore um, the, the final wholeness of the product, uh, of the plant. And so there's a whole different context to that passage, uh, which I don't have at my fingertips right now, but I know it's out there. I've read it. Um, Earl Rodmacher, who was president of uh, Western Baptist Seminary in, in Oregon here, um, took a very hard stance in, in, a, in the way that I'm talking about it, and did uh, some really good work on that. But, but it's there. I just, in fact, about a month ago was looking through that passage with some of the uh, current uh, theological work that's been done on it. And, it. and it doesn't mean what we think it does. It doesn't mean how it appears on, on its face value. Uh, but again, here's the deal. A lot of times, those of us who've grown up in Western rationalistic Christianity, we, we are proof texters, you know, we will hop from one seemingly uh, difficult verse to another seemingly difficult verse and ignore the overarching declarations of Scripture. It's like uh, we just want to proof text ourselves into a place where somebody uh, with a different argument is now stuck. Um, And we've ignored, you know, like simple things like God is love. There is no fear in love. That's first right. John, right? That's right. a declaration. For God was in Christ recon- and reconciled, to use Martin Luther's translation, and reconciled, past tense, completed action, the world, the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. For this is a true statement that is worthy of, uh, worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, that every human being, uh, this is uh, Mars Hill, that you are all God's children, you know, speaking to the pagans in Athens. And in him you live and move and have your being. That's the same as First John, right? Nothing that has come into to being has come into being apart from him. 
So uh, again, it's like, what is the big picture? Who is the God that Jesus has come to reveal? And, and uh, to use Richard Rohr's line, which I think is tremendous, he says, you know, the incarnation is not Jesus coming to change God's view about humanity. It's coming to change humanity's view about God. And, yes. and I think that's, that's profoundly helpful. Um, so uh, we can, and, and all these passages need to be talked about and worked through, no question about it. Mm. But, but the big overarching picture of the New Testament and, and what you did by sticking to the gospels for a long chunk of time, brilliant. You know, that's what a lot of us need to do because we've, we've, been, we've been taught the person of Jesus into incoherence. And, and it's, it's a logical, propositional paradigm that's stuck in our minds and it's incredibly powerful. And it takes, it takes love and time and questions and uh, process in order to work our way out of that. But it's happening and it's happening faster for people as the systems are losing their authority and power the emergence of each person's ability to hear the Holy Spirit for themselves is becoming much more front and center. So it's not just theology, which I love, it's encounter, which, mm. is, which is transformational. Yes. And I, I so echo what you're, um, what you're talking about there with encounter, because, you know, like you referenced when I just hovered on the Jesus part of the story, it really starts to give you a different framework to look at the whole God story. You start seeing the people in scripture as just that people. And then you start identifying more with the mankind portion of the Bible versus this whole thing is the quote unquote mouthpiece of God. (laughs) It starts helping you see it through such a more beautiful yet even more mysterious lens, which, you know, scripture it's earned the right to be wrestled with. And there's so much to be said about like you said, that risky part of relationship where you have to risk asking hard questions. You have to risk wrestling it out. Um, and that's where the encounter piece happens. And I think, I think you're right. A lot of people are starting to have this shaking process where they are now coming to terms with, what is this thing that I've been taught my whole life? And what do I really think about it? And well, what does this mean? And, and it's, it can be very shaky. Yeah. A lot of my, <clears throat> a lot of my listeners are in that space and I, and I, I imagine some of them are saying, okay, I'm tracking with the hell part of scripture. I'm tracking with what you're saying. But if we let go of that, then what is there to promote? What is there to evangelize? Because it's, because it's, it's heaven versus hell, man. That's our speech. So what are we left with? You know, um, I, I have a friend who knew Billy Graham and uh, throughout his, his, well, good chunks of his uh, life and knew him as an elderly man. And uh, in fact, my friend died exactly one year before Billy did. And um, in one of his conversations with Billy Graham, um, Billy said, you know, he said, I, he said, I have to tell you, I've, I never actually met the person of Jesus until after all the crusades were over. He said, I, uh. I realized that, that all those years I didn't introduce anybody to a person. I introduced them to a decision and mm. into a transaction. And it, and it was a, a great sense of loss for him. And um, 
And a lot of times when we think evangelism, we think transactional uh, agenda um, rather than... Conversion, yeah. Well, that's what we think. Rather than, you know, the expression of good news. That is, you're included, you know, you were included from the beginning, Ephesians chapter one, Colossians chapter one, you know, and um, so a, a lot of the incentive of evangelism has been fear and guilt and coercion and manipulation and self-righteousness and all that. And it's like, oh, so that's supposed to produce good results, really? Um, mm. But it has been, and it's been based on magic and transaction. You know, you've got to say a a particular kind of prayer to be in a prayer that by the way, Jesus never used and is not in scripture. And, uh, but it's become paramount to us. And so we've reduced relationship to a transaction and then trying to figure out how we're not prostituting ourselves for the sake of the money that's necessary to maintain the religious empire that we're a part of. And um, the incentive is look, you can live a life that's free from all the, all the brokenness. Are you, are you kidding? That's that's yours now. And and this is not about you becoming something that you weren't before. It's about uncovering the truth of who you've been the whole time. Mm. You know, you're made in the image and likeness of God. You were a very good creation before anything got covered up and broken. And that, and that is more true about you than any of the brokenness. I mean, the declaration of you are a part of something that it transcends religion and politics, transcends nationalism and economics, that is about you being fully human and fully alive. And in relationship with a God who loves you, who's especially fond of you, who is involved in the details of your lives, but does so with great respect and dignifies you in the process, uh, what do you want as an incentive rather than, well, if you don't make this decision, you're going to be in eternal conscious torment forever. That's the incentive, you know, mm. and, and therefore you need to, you know, submit yourself to a God that, that we think is actually kind of a narcissistic, abusive deity, the way we talk about him. And uh, not the God revealed in Jesus, the God revealed in religion. And, um, and that's the God that atheists have rejected. And I'm, right. with, I'm with them. I'm like, right. I don't believe in that, that, that God exists either. Well, it's like, uh, I think Richard Rohr even said that it's not good and it's not new news. You know, the yeah. idea of God not being pleased with you and wanting to punish you eternally is not good. And yeah. the news that we're not all that great is nothing new. Right. Like, Right, right. I know. It's the same old, same old. We just wrap it into, let's call it Christianity now instead of something else. Right. Instead of Baal worship or Marduk, you know, that, that needs sacrifice and needs, needs uh, magic, you know. And this is not what relationships are about. They're not about magic. Um, they're, they're messy and hard work. And, and, and yet, the, the joy that is inside, the transformational power that's inside of relationship is, is lasts forever. It's, I mean, it's more profound than raising the dead, which is just biological and, and temporary. <laughs> you know, this is talking about things that actually change us um, forever. And it's, and again, it's about uncovering 
more than it is about any kind of um, being change. You know, you're, you're made in the image and likeness of God. So what's the truth of your being? Mm. That, that you're a piece of crap? Well, if that's the truth of your being, good luck in trying to perform your way into something other than that. All you're going to do is cover up the fact that you think you're a piece of crap. And, um, and that's why so many people within religious systems are hiding. They don't, they, don't want to, they don't want to tell people about the hurt and about the damage and about their struggles because everybody else looks so good. And, right. um, and, it's all, and it's fake. And once you begin to realize, good grief, everybody's covering up. And then you go like, well, then this can't be true. This just can't be right. And we tend to, to walk away at that point. Or, you know, if, we, if, we are, if we're healthy enough to walk away, a lot of us are so addicted to the fear and the shame that we've grown up with that it becomes an incredible struggle to walk away from an institutional structure um, through which our sense of salvation has been procured. And, um, but yeah, I mean, this is real, this kind of transformational movement um, that is happening in our own souls, you know, the breaking down of the lies and the paradigms. And it's not comfortable. Uh, let's make that no. perfectly clear. But when have we ever really changed without some kind of conflict, you know, some, mm. some kind of tension? Yeah, you, know, you can't even fly a plane without a headwind. You know, there there has to be something that is causing our stuff to come to the surface, and relationships, and family, and and uh, betrayed friendships, and addictions, and all those things. I mean, it'll cause our stuff to come to the surface if nothing else will. And then it's like, oh, what do we do? What do we do with the loss of a of a grandchild? What do we do with a suicide of a, of a son or daughter? What do we do with a child who um, has declared themselves to be uh, gay? What do we do um, relation, you know, our theology so oftentimes has been a, a, a place where it's a battlement. It's where we hid ourselves behind. And then we found out that it's in our, it's, it's inside the walls that things are starting to fall apart. And that's a challenge to our theology as well. Well, and like you just said, when you encounter those tough moments in life, which all of us will, if we haven't already had a long history of, of bumps along the way behind us, and you start that wrestling, a lot of people, and it's just, and I know you've seen this and it's so heartbreaking to watch, this is where that theology that they have clung so tightly to destroys those relationships even further. And so how, what would you say to, to say someone who's a parent where their child has come out to them or to someone who's lost a loved one and they just can't believe a good God would do that and they're feeling the fears of hell versus heaven and my theology? And what would you say to a person feeling that tension? Oh, boy. Um, and, and there's no formula to anything, especially when you start talking about relationship and a response within it. Um, Billy Graham also had a really great response in, in, in terms of some of these questions. He would say, look, you know, our, our job is not to convict the world of sin. And, and the word convict means to expose, you know, and, and that's what it says. The Holy Spirit has come to expose the world of its brokenness. For what point? To humiliate? Absolutely not. It's, it's to heal. And so that's not our job. We get to be the presence of love. We get to be the presence of Jesus in the midst of things that are, are broken. And we get to know, we get to learn how to trust. 
I tell you, these situations, they're going to they're going to either promote your addiction for control or they're going to push you in the direction of trust because you only mm. when you deal with fear and these kinds of situations will always raise fear, uh, the potential of it anyway. And uh, when you deal with fear, the question is, do you know you're loved or not? Is there a God who's involved, who's good all the time? Is there a God involved in the details of your life? You know, and if you don't believe that, you're going to go to control because you're the only one that you can trust. And in so many of these situations, the, the person thinks through control that they're going to be able to manage um, other people's behaviors. And it's just not true. It doesn't work. And, um, and those situations not only will be crucibles for the person who is in the middle of them, but it's, it's going to ripple out into everybody, including the parent, including, you know, if we're talking about that specific situation, but, but it's going to be like, so what are you going to do? Are you going to trust the Holy Spirit in your child? Or are you going to play the Holy Spirit in your child's life? Mm. You know, um, because that's, that's the control decision. Do I trust the Holy Spirit in that person? involved in that person? Do I think God's such, does just doesn't do a very good job of this. So I need to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, you know? And, um, and it's, it's like, no, you get, we get the, the invitation to be the presence of love, right? The invitation to, to, to walk in it, to not try to control it, not trying to dictate you know, behavioral modification, whatever, um, uh, to, to walk with those, you know, we, we get to do what Jesus does and that is move towards suffering, not away from it. Uh, I've been thinking recently about the, the fact that God never has built a cross in his life <laughs> in his <laughs> eternal life. And, um, God doesn't build crosses, you know, human beings build crosses. And, oh, that's so good. Oh, it's so helpful because when Jesus says, take up your cross daily, says he's not talking about anything that God has given you. He's talking about the fact that we live in a broken world full of people who are making decisions that are oftentimes self-destructive or hurtful of others, and uh, which is the same thing. And, um, um, and he's saying, look, you know, you, you live in family dysfunction, you live in relational dynamics at work, you live in all of this, you know, pick up your cross, m move toward it, because that's what God does. And, um, and, and you don't do this alone. There's, there's a God who is in this with you, who, who m the reason that you will move toward that suffering is because that is exactly where God is. And, um, and so, you know, take up your cross daily, live inside the world that's actually in front of you, not some imagination of what it should be like. And, and uh, I think yeah. what's amazing about that movement towards that, where you become more in proximity to the other or to someone that you would have previously written off as, you know, this is my project that I need to fix and this is the one I need to save and evangelize to. But when you get in life with them, all of a sudden, those, those lines tend to just naturally disappear you know, yeah. when you're, when you're involved in life, like Jesus was with the other, they don't look like the other for very long. Yeah. Um, my friend Jim up in Seattle, he says, relationships break the rules. 
you know. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, and uh, and and it's so true. We um, as soon as you humanize or put a face on someone, you cannot treat them the way you thought you should. Mm -hmm. And um, and it it happens all the time. I have friends who whose son have has just gone through a really intense is still in actually a really intense season of psychotic breaks, and mm. uh, and was sort of lost on the streets. Was picked up by a guy, driven back to his apartment. The guy bought a case of water for him, made sure that he was safe and and protected. The guy's a Muslim, you know. And as as soon as you do that, it's like. Uh, all right, that's a violation of my paradigm, you know? And, and uh -huh. Jesus says, says to the rich young ruler, you know, why are you calling me good? Because the rich young ruler addressed him as, you know, good teacher, wanted to talk to him about performance, uh, Christianity, you know? And, uh, and Jesus says, why did, why did you call me good? There's only one who's good, and that, that's God. And he's not saying I'm not good. Jesus is saying, do you recognize God in me? That is, you're calling me good. And the implication of that is anywhere you find good, like in this Muslim brother who took care of my friend's son, any, any place you find good, you find the presence of God because there's only yes. one who's good. And, um, you know, um, my friend Andrew Marin wrote a book called uh, Love is an Orientation, which is, which is engaging the conversation about spirituality in the LGBTQ community. And, um, and he also wrote the biggest research project on spirituality in the LGBTQ community called Us Versus Us. Um, but in his book, um, he tells a story of, uh, he used to do these seminars in the LGBTQ community about building your identity on something other than your sexuality, which is mm. profoundly important. Um, and, uh, and he wasn't trying to change anybody. He was just talking about relationship with Jesus because he's at the place where he trusts the Holy Spirit in their lives and uh, doesn't want to play the Holy Spirit. But um, he does these 16-week sessions. Uh, he was doing them in um, a particular area in Chicago. And, and uh, a guy showed up the first night and starts dropping the F-bomb every other, you know, F your Jesus, F your Bible. Um, and... Um, and very disruptive. And at the end of the evening, Andrew's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, you know, um, I hope he doesn't come back, you know. Well, he shows up again the next week and, and, he, and he does this for like 12 weeks in a row. And uh, even the, the LGBTQ community is trying to get the guy to calm down and, and because he's so disruptive. And um, uh, I think it was the 12th week or the 13th week and and they start the evening session and he's sitting in the front row and he doesn't say anything. And Andrew, um, he said, not one of my best moments. I turned to him and I say, what cat got your tongue? You got a problem? Well, you got nothing to say this week. And the guy steps up, walks up onto the stage, takes the mic. And Andrew says, and he tells us, he says the most horrific abuse story I've ever heard. And, um, and, and all of a sudden, it no longer was about um, the contention and the conflict. Uh, it was a. It, was, it humanized him, right? And right. and he said, and here's the deal. So I became his friend, and over the course of the next couple of years, he would say to me, Andrew, someday I'm going to introduce you to my my family. And Andrew's thinking while well, he's talking about the homies, you know. 
And, um, and about two years later, he walks in and with him are like six or seven well-dressed, um, uh, uh, Hispanic, African-American, Hispanic, um, adults. Turns out that one's, uh, one or two of them are pastors, uh, two of them are lawyers, one's a doctor. And, and this guy is Caucasian. He's a white guy. And Andrew's like, so he, and he says, well, I told you, I wanted you to meet my family. And Andrew's like, well, how are these your family? He says, oh, I, you mean I never told you? He said, back in the day, my partner and I wanted to have children, but we weren't allowed to legally or any other way. So we would go down to Mexico and we would find children that had been thrown away in the garbage dumps. They were left, mm. left for dead. These are those children. We brought them back and raised them, you know? And, oh, I'm about to cry. Well, oh. it's just like, come on. You know, in order to make a them and in order to then speak with, with, with a fury and a hatred that Jesus never would have abided, um, uh, we, have to, we have to dehumanize them. We have right. to m- make them an enemy in such a way that we feel justified in our anger. And we do this not only to the LGBTQ person, we do it to a family member who has failed to live up to the community expectations, or we do it to the marginalized, or we do, you know, we create a, we do it to those Muslims or, uh, you know, th- those Pentecostals. I mean, we, we are so good at categorizing um, a group of people in order to make, uh, make them enemies. And Jesus is absolutely opposed to that. He's all about, you know, I want you to know uh, that you're relating to one of my children. Right. You know? And uh, the God and father of us all, as Paul the Apostle says. And um, yeah. So again, by, hum- by humanizing someone, it destroys your ability to objectify and judge them in, a, in that negative sense. Well, and circling back to what you touched on earlier, before, before I derailed you a different way, um, you were talking about the authentic piece. And I, I couldn't help but think of this while you were talking that, well, of course we dehumanize them because we've dehumanized ourselves. Correct. Yeah. We've not allowed ourselves to be authentic human beings. We've not allowed those conversations or those real moments to happen. We live in hiding. We live under false pretenses and false faces. And we do the thing we feel we're supposed to do to be good enough, to be worthy enough. And of course, why wouldn't we project that onto other people? Yep. Yeah. You know, we have a very low view of humanity. And we think God does too. And that was delivered to us in our Western evangelical heritage is that you're totally depraved. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. You're, you're, really, you're really a worthless you know, um, piece of garbage, really. That's your, that's your fundamental nature. And, um, and we were told that. Um, but God doesn't become anything that is not good and becomes fully human. You know, this is, if, if you want to explore what it means to be fully human and fully alive, read the gospels, look at the life of Jesus like you did. And you'll see a human being who is in relationship with a God who loves him and he knows it. And with the Holy Spirit, who is a constant companion. And, um, 
uh, we've got to break the paradigm of God having a low view of humanity. And, and if we can do that, we can begin to break the paradigm of us having a low view of humanity, especially when we look in the mirror, because we're fundamentally motivated by shame. Shame is, is the big motivator in the world. And, um, and that's what, you know, drives us to suicide. That's what drives us to hiding. That's what drives us to aloneness, to addiction, to covering up, to staying hidden, to keeping secrets. Um, it's shame. And at the core of it is the sense that, you know what, I'm really worthless. And if people actually found out the truth of who I am, they would also know that I'm worthless and I just can't take that risk. And, um, and you know, it's, that's got to change. I, one of the things that I like to say to help break some of that paradigm is I ask the question, why do you think Jesus didn't sin? And the answer is he didn't want to become less human. Hu humans weren't designed to be broken. They were designed mm. to be whole. And, oh, that's so good. Oh, it, it's just, we've got to get out of this total depravity, you know, that that's the truth of our being. When you know the truth of your being, the way of your being will match it. And that's called wholeness. Yes. Right? So the, what's the truth of your being? And I can tell you, the truth of your being is that you're kind and you're loyal, and you're faithful, and you're pure of heart, and you're self-controlled, and you're good. You know, everything that is true about God is true about you at the core of your being. Now, it may have been covered up by whatever. You know, some of us, it's sexual abuse and abuse, and having no parents, having, you know, uh, destructive parental models, being in, who knows, all the kinds of things that covered up the truth of our being. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to get inside of all that damage and to begin to whisper to you, let me tell you who you are. And when you begin to know who you are, you will be able to look in the mirror and, and instead of seeing something that disgusts you, you will see something that you can embrace and live out. The way of your being will naturally match the truth of your being. But as a person thinks in their heart, so are they, even if what they think is a lie. And right. That's, that's what I'm watching the Holy Spirit begin to dismantle and destroy some of the lies that we've inherited, frankly, from some of our theology, which has not been helpful. Oh my gosh, this is so good. I, I could literally pick your brain for like five hours and still think of more questions to ask you. <laughs> I you. want us to, to end on, on two things because there are two groups of people I know that are listening to this. And the first one is the group that is struggling with anger and bitterness towards religion, towards Christianity that they've been handed. Yeah. What would you say to that group of people? Um, fury is the right response to injustice. You know, don't, don't be afraid of your own fury. Um, just, just be angry, but don't sin. That is don't, don't let yourself become someone who loves less because you're angry. And, um, um, that's, it's, it is a normal part of the process to have a, have a point where you're furious and it's a, it's a healthy thing. Um, just don't get stuck there and don't confuse religion with Jesus. And, um, mm. and, you know, we co-opted Jesus and created a religion out of it. Christianity is a religion. Um, I tell people, you know, only be a Christian when it's helpful. Um, because it's like Paul being a Roman you know, he was only a Roman when it was helpful. 
and uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's true. like there's there are times where it's helpful, but right. but you don't have to be one. You don't. It, it's like no, this is about Jesus. It's never been about Christianity, and um, and therefore it opens up a world that that you're not defined by identification with a political, structural, economic, institutional system, which is mm. what it largely is. And, um, and so, you know, it's, when people ask me if I'm a Christian, I say, well, tell me what you think one is. I'll tell you if I'm one of those, you know? Oh, I love that. Can I borrow that? I'm so going to use that because I get that question it. now a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just tell me what you think. Cause I don't mind being one, but a lot of what people mean by it, I'm not that. Right. You know, I'm right. just, I'm just not that. So, um, with regard, you know, do the work that's in front of you. Be angry, resist the temptation to, to become another divider, you know? Um, yeah. But phew, there are things that, that we should be absolutely furious about that were delivered to us. Uh, we were lied to about the character and nature of God. We were lied to about the character and nature of what it means to be human. You know, we were lied to about a lot of stuff. And it wasn't like in, it was set out as intention. It was that they didn't know what they were saying either. You know, right. They didn't. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, when I when I meet somebody and they're they're telling me this some of the crap and stuff, I know two things. One is that they were once a child, and they're coming. Mm. They're coming to tell me in the only language they know how about what matters to them. Mm. And and I need to meet them where they are. And I'm not at risk. You know, I don't need to be a debater. I don't need to convince people that I'm smart. I get to be love in the midst of wherever they're at because they matter more to me than where they're stuck or they matter more to me than, than the lies that they believe. Right. Oh, that's good. The, sec okay, this, the other group, the other group. Yes. The second group would be those who might be feeling a little bit of panic right now. Um, feeling like all their ideas that you and I have discussed in such a different light during this conversation might be causing a lot of anxiety, fear, panic, like, oh my gosh, you just opened up this whole, you know, you pulled out the rug from underneath me. What would you say to that group that might be feeling some anxiety right now? The Holy Spirit's your teacher and you can trust the Holy Spirit. This is the, the beautiful thing about the new covenant is that Everything has now become internalized, including the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You know, um, go to that safe place within your own being, the place that was safe when you were a child. You know, whether it's the beach or top of a mountain. I'm talking about inside. Not You don't have to go there physically. But, but go and ask Jesus to come talk to you. And, and, and ask the questions like, are you here? Ask, I mean... Are you in me? Ask that. Simple question. Are you in me? Do you like me? Mm. Do you love me? Uh, before you even get to the stuff that's rambling around in the intellectual side of this conversation, you know, tell me who you are. Uh, you know, and then you could you ask the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal your heart will resonate with things that your mind will really have a problem with. Yeah. That's, that is not unusual. Yeah. Um, the heart 
so much of the heart is is a, a place where the Holy Spirit can resonate. It's like a tuning fork that goes off. So this happened with the shack. A lot of people who read the shack, um, their hearts resonated, but their minds couldn't handle the change in terms of the potential paradigm shift. And, um, and so that's where they, they got really, uh, in internal turmoil, which is normal, by the way. Um, when a paradigm changes, you're going to feel like things are, um, are, uh, slippery or, or uncertain and relationship is always uncertain to to a degree, it's the the question is the certainty of the character of the one you're in relationship with, and um, and so trust the Holy Spirit. I trust the Holy Spirit in your life, and then begin to ask the questions. Read outside of your tradition, you know. In, engage with the question about so how coherent is my inside world and my outside world? Mm. You know how. When I do, I just talk a good theology, or you know, it has my theology led me to coherence in my life? Um, has theology led me toward wholeness? Has it led me toward having a greater capacity to love? And um, and you know, sit inside some of those questions, and then invite people into that conversation with you. Um, it's it's. It's a scary journey to leave the certainty of your intellectual rationality, your intellectual theology, and move to encounter. But it's absolutely necessary, and it makes sense. Even it makes makes sense rationally, if you think about it, is that we're talking about a God who actually is involved in our lives, a relationship with persons. And and so, yeah, and I'm saying, like, you know what? The fact that you're even listening to this stuff, there's something going on inside of you that matters. Mm. And, uh, and, and you don't believe everything that you did 15 years ago. Why, right. why, why do you think you got it all together now? I don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Relax. One day's grace at a time. Oh, this has been so good. This has been so good. Can you tell our listeners that may not know where to find your work? Can you tell them where they can find your works, including your latest new book? Oh, they're they're all over the place. The the new one's called Lies We Believe About God. And, you know, you can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or all that stuff. The website that connects you to Facebook and all that, which I don't do a very good job of, by the way, just so you know. Um, but it's WM Paul Young. WM for William, WM Paul And um, uh, there's a resource center there where you can look at interviews and stuff that I've done. But if you go on YouTube, I'm kind of all over the place, and um, um, but but that'll but through that you'll also get introduced to some other theologians that are are doing some great work on on these kinds of conversations and questions as well, and um, you know it's um, you're worth the work, and uh, and and the work is important, your voice is important, who you are is important. And if, uh, if, you, if your theology doesn't lead you to a greater capacity to love, I suggest you just lay it aside and figure out why. And um, that's part of the journey that we're all on. You're not alone in it, for sure. Oh, 
So good. So, so good. I will make sure and put a link to your website um, in the show notes so that'll make it easier for all the listeners to find it. Thank you so much again for doing this. Like I said at the top of the show, you have been such um, a teacher in my life, although you didn't even know it. You have been a great teacher to me. And I have just been so thankful for not only your work, but but for the voice and the love that you carry because you carry you carry divine love. You just do. And it bleeds into everything that you say and do. So thank you for being you. And thank you for your bravery and being a voice for so many people who, who are still trying to find theirs. Anna, thank you. It's been an absolute honor to be with you. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Every conversation is a two-way street. So it, it helps me remember things that are true as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.